Good morning, church. My name is Leon McKenzie, and I serve as a pastor for teaching and preaching here at Redeemer Community Church. And it is a privilege and honor to be with you this morning. I don't have any announcements, so we will jump into the meat of the sermon, or we'll jump into the sermon. But before we actually get to the meat of the sermon this morning, um, I think it would be helpful for us to recap a few things. And um, I'm kind of jumping in a little quickly because there's a lot to cover and I want to make sure that I can keep your attention span. Uh, studies show that attention spans are at an all-time low um, for all people. And I think it's getting somewhere around 10 minutes. So I've already used uh, 10% of your attention span with this little spiel already. So um, without losing any more of your attention span, um, I want us to talk about a few things. Um, these are recaps from a sermon I gave a couple weeks ago. And the first one is the definition of sin. If you remember, we define sin by the Greek word for sin in the New Testament, which is, anybody can guess? No, hamartia. Hamartia, which is a, the literal word, and it should pop up here for us, Grand Anne, if you can go to that one. Hamartia. And it means uh, literally to miss the mark. Um, and we talked about the mark or the marks that are missed when we sin being human flourishing and pleasing God, right? Human flourishing and pleasing God. We talked about how Jesus summed up the mark or marks by saying that the greatest commandments or the greatest things that, the greatest, uh, things that God calls us to do as humans are to love God and to love people. And then we talked about how these two commandments are summations of the first ten commandments that God gave um, the people of Israel through Moses in Exodus chapter 20. Um, and, and these ten commandments, we listed them out here. This is as Eugene Peterson interprets it in the Message Bible, which is a fantastic interpretation um, or translation of the Bible. And these ten commandments are not exhaustive. They're not everything that God calls us to do, but they serve as a great gauge for us to be able to tell whether or not we are missing or hitting the marks of both human flourishing and loving God or, or, or pleasing God, loving God and loving others or loving neighbor. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I, wanted, I, I had to acknowledge or I had to take a moment to recognize um, that it was, it's very difficult for me to explain and talk about sin. And we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago when I talked about forgiveness. And I wondered why it was so difficult for me to think, you know, talk about sin or think about sin or explaining sin. And um, I realized that it's because this idea of sin, as it's been traditionally understood, isn't as, as widely understood anymore, especially in the church. And I think the reason for this has to do with some advancements in social ethics. Um, I think that a lot of uh, the social ethics, and, and a lot in some good ways, but, and in some not so good ways, but social ethics, like for example, surrounding sexuality or marriage or the preservation of human life or a slew of other things, um, because of the social ethics that surround us and that are much more common and they're, much more, they're, they're talked about a lot more than ethics within the church, it becomes difficult to kind of understand like what, what's being said there, what the Bible says, and how do we reconcile what is like sin, right? What exactly is sin? And some of the good parts, just some of the good things that have happened with social ethics that has caused us to rethink this is, for example, 
um, recognizing how misogyny, right, historically has been kind of like read into the Bible, right? And so in our attempts to kind of read that out of the Bible, we're trying to figure out, so then what is sin, right, in, in, in regards to that? Or, or, for example, racism. Understanding the way re- racism has been read into the Bible historically, as we read it out, we're trying to understand, so then what is sin exactly? And what I think this whole conversation, this whole diatribe I just gave, I think it presents a problem, but also an opportunity. An opportunity for us as the church at large and for us here at Redeemer to develop a more all-encompassing, what's called, big word, homartiology, right? And homartiology just means a study of or or, um, thinking about sin. Right. One that takes into account all of these um, differences in social ethics and the things that we're trying to read out of the scripture. Right. Now, here is the problem. I don't have time to do that this morning. Right. So I'm going to talk about sin and my prayer as I, we talk about sin, we talk about repentance. And we'll talk a lot about that this morning is that the Lord would show each of us in our own hearts where indeed we have sin and we are in need of repentance. Okay, where we're where, where we are missing the marks of human flourishing and pleasing God and where we have need of essentially turning from those things to God. That's my prayer this morning. Um, maybe in some other realm we can work on things like a, a homardiology of it. But um, unfortunately, today we won't go that deep into it. But I want us to figure out, you know, how is God calling us to repent? And the main idea of our sermon this morning is just that is that. True repentance requires a grieved heart that produces a changed life. Okay? True repentance requires a grieved heart that produces a changed life. And so we're going to read Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Feel free to turn there in your own Bibles, in your phones, tablets, whatever you have available to you, or just follow along as it's written up here on the um, prompt here. And so, beginning in verse 28, this is Jesus speaking. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, friends. Father, I thank you for another day where you've counted it um, worthwhile that I could stand before your people and proclaim your truth as you've given it to us in your word. And my prayer, Lord, is that as we hear your word, that our response would be indeed repentance. Lord, that you would overwhelm us with the love you have for us. You would overwhelm us with your mercy, with your grace shown us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that indeed, Father, we would turn to you in response. Lord, as your word goes forth, I pray you would grant me clarity of speech and communication. And, Lord, you would cause your word to accomplish in every heart and mind present exactly what you sent it for to accomplish. That as our children workers seek to teach our children in these trailers, as you would have them, that, Father, those children would be able to receive 
that your word, the truth of your gospel, will be as seed sown in good soil. And when time comes, you would reap a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold, even of those little hearts and minds in there. May your kingdom come, Father. May your will indeed be done and help us to be faithful workers in your kingdom, building heaven even here on earth. We love and we thank you, for you are indeed merciful and kind. In Jesus' name, amen. So the parable that we just read that Jesus tells here is an illustration of repentance. And for context, this parable comes on the heels of a very famous uh, event in Scripture when Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he throws over the, the tables of the money changers and he drives out the people who are selling doves and other animals for sacrifice in the temple. And Jesus did this because those who were selling and changing money, they were extorting or taking advantage of the worshipers. They were charging more than they should for the things they were doing, and they were taking advantage particularly of the poorer worshipers. I think that's why uh, Matthew highlights the selling of the doves, because doves primarily for those who could not afford the bigger animals for sacrifice. And so specifically he sent those out because they were taking advantage of the poorer worshipers who came to be faithful. Well, in response to Jesus' actions in the temple, the religious leaders who were often, uh, um, they were contrary to Jesus, they were his opponents often, they came to him and they essentially asked him, Jesus, who gave you the authority to do this thing? From where do you get the authority to run up in the temple and throw over tables and throw these people out? Well, as was Jesus' custom, he responds to their question with a question. He says, well, I'll tell you where my authority comes from if you will tell me where did John the Baptist's authority come from as he baptized. Well, Matthew tells us that they were afraid to admit that John's authority came from God likely because they didn't believe it, but also because they were afraid of the crowds, because they understood that the crowds believed that John was a prophet, that he was from God. But they were also afraid to say that it was of his own accord. Essentially, they were just terrified of the people. And it's interesting it's interesting that they knew that there were so many people who believed John. And the question that I had as I was preparing for this sermon was what about the people scared them? Could it be that among these people were people in certain levels of authority that could enact punishment on them for harassing Jesus and not believing in John? Or maybe they were just afraid of going against the crowd. Well, this latter reason is likely the case. We read that later on in chapter 21. Jesus says this clearly. But as I was reading this and asking myself this question, I felt like the Lord shared something with me that I wanted to share with you this morning, and it's this. A person cannot follow Jesus faithfully if they will not go against the crowd. 
A person cannot follow Jesus faithfully if they are not willing to go against the crowd because following Jesus and going against the crowd are two sides of the same coin. Following Jesus and going against the crowd are part and parcel of the Christian life. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But it's enough to say now that the religious leaders decide to answer that they don't know. So Jesus tells them that since they don't know where John got his authority from, he isn't going to tell them where his authority came from. And it's pretty clear that Jesus understood that John's authority came from God, much like his own authority. But Jesus didn't, need, didn't see the need to, answer, to give them an answer that they would clearly reject. So instead, he tells the parable that we just read. And I think the purpose of this parable is to get to the root of the religious leaders' problems. And the root is this. These religious leaders' hearts were so hard that even if they were told the right answer, they would not repent. Even if Jesus gave them the right answer, they would not turn from their stubborn defiance to God. Even though they'd seen so many people turning to God, they would not turn. So Jesus tells a parable. He says that there's a man who owns a vineyard. A vineyard is simply a grape farm. And he owns the vineyard. He has two kids. And he tells the two kids one day, he says, go out into the vineyard and, I guess, pick grapes. Work in the vineyard. Well, the first one says that he's not going to go. Later on, he changes his mind and he goes. The second one says that he will go. And he doesn't. And so Jesus sums up the, the, the lesson of this parable by looking at the religious leaders and asking them a simple question, which one of these kids did what the father wanted them to do? And apparently they answer correctly. They say the one who changed his mind and eventually goes. And Jesus sees their answer as their own condemnation. In verses 31b through 32, Jesus says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. In other words, Jesus says, you were shown the way of repentance by so many who repented and believed in John and his way of life. Yet you double down in your hard hearts and you refuse to believe. And what Jesus does here is no mistake. Jesus makes sure to reference the people who they assumed were the lowest of the low in society. He references the people who they would have assumed were beyond redemption. The hated tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus says that these are the people who are leading the way into the kingdom of God. These are the people who are leading the way into the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And these religious leaders are being left behind because they refuse to follow. And brothers and sisters, the message to these religious leaders is the message for us today. We too will be left behind and out of the kingdom if we do not follow the example and way of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. 
if we do not follow the way of repentance. Repentance is the way of the kingdom, and repentance is our way into the kingdom. And I only have one thing I want to share, one main point, if you're taking notes from this, from this sermon today. Usually there's three. That's the way we're taught in seminary, a good three-point sermon. Today I'm breaking all the rules. One-point sermon. And it's this. Repentance as a matter of the heart is displayed by what is done and not merely what is believed or said or felt. In other words, when it comes to repentance, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. In verse 29, Jesus uses uses an important word to describe the repentance of the first son. Jesus says that the one son who changes his mind, right, he says the Greek word for that change of mind is metamelamai. Everybody say metamelamai. Some of you guys just said metamelamai. Metamelamai. And the glosses or definitions for this word are extremely helpful, okay? Um, They should pop up here. Um, It's to rue or regret, to have dissatisfaction with oneself or what one has done, to change or alter one's purpose, have anxiety consequent on a past transaction, to have pain of mind rather than change of mind, and change of purpose rather than change of heart. In other words, Jesus says that this kid, though he gave the wrong answer to the question, later regretted what had been said. He was pained for having said it, and this pain produced a purpose. I mean, produced a change of purpose in as much as it also produced a change in action. It produced a change in his orientation and reaction to both the question and to his father. Whereas at one time he did not want to do as the father would have him, Now he wants to do it, and not only wants to do it, he actually goes and does it. And brothers and sisters, this is the kind of repentance that Jesus is applauding from the tax collectors and from the prostitutes, the lowest members of society, the undesirables in these religious people's minds. Whereas they had made some poor choices and done some terrible things in their lives, they now grieved doing these things and changed the orientation of their lives to doing as God would have them and living as God would have them. And this is in contrast to the religious leaders. Because even though the religious leaders would have probably answered the right answers to the questions and believed all of the right theologies, and even though they looked like they had it all together on the outside, the way they lived their lives disclosed that they were not oriented to living for God. They weren't oriented to hitting the mark, to pleasing God, and to human flourishing, to loving God, and to loving their neighbor. Their lives did not display true repentance. And friends, this is the difference between life in the kingdom of God and life outside of the kingdom. Because here's the truth. Both the Christian, the follower of God, and the unbeliever, the one who is not following God currently, we both miss the mark. We both are sinners. The only difference is that one has been grieved by what he or she has done. And reoriented their lives to what is right and what is pleasing to God. The other may continue 
in the way that displeases God. And even if they are warned, even if they see people turning from their former ways and turning to a life for God, they refuse. And I think that in this particular passage, what Jesus is getting at is extremely important for us to get. When Jesus says that these religious leaders refused to turn, even though they saw the repentance of the tax collectors and the prostitutes, I think that Jesus is pointing to, pointing to this thing, brothers and sisters. I was sharing this with Pastor Drew in the office this week. Pastor Drew and now Ruby, who's subject to all of my theological and sermon musings. And she's fantastic. She always listens, even though I know I'm keeping her from her work. She's fantastic. But I was telling them that I believe that the most miraculous work that God is doing in the world today is changing the hearts of people from sinner to faithful follower of Christ. I believe that the most miraculous work that God is doing in the world today is to transform someone's heart from delighting in sin to delighting in the pleasure of God and the flourishing of humankind. If you're here this morning if you, and you've experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. You may remember what it was like to go out every day in the world with a heart determined to engage in some level of sinful task or, 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 or thing. I remember, I'll never forget this, um, I got saved pretty young, but I did have enough experience of being a hellion that um, I can remember certain things. I remember we had a, a neighbor two doors down in our apartment complex, we had townhomes, a neighbor two, do two doors down, her name was Miss D. And Miss D was one of the first faithful believers I'd ever met. Um, she had recently become ordained as a minister in her church. She was fantastic. Ms. D was, she was one of those people who, like, everybody in the neighborhood loved, right? Everybody wanted, Ms. D was, like, five months pregnant and would be out running with us in the streets and playing games. She was just the most awesome person in the world. And she was raising her daughters up in the way they should go. Now, again, I was a little hellion. The Lord had not touched my heart yet. And what had come out during this time was uh, one of Busta Rhymes, uh, you know who Busta Rhymes is? If you know, uh, One of his albums, I forget which one it is, but I think it was the one with uh, 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 Put Your Hands Where My Eyes Could See. Some of you guys are going to play your cards and let me know that you used to love sin too, right? Well, in this time, I, I was a really young kid, um, I did not like purchasing the clean versions of albums. What was the, that's what the radio was for. But you went and spent your money to get the full, you know, the unedited version, the unclean version. And I had gotten it, and I remember, um, I remember I was playing it in the car, and, um, you, know, not, um, you know, my mom was in the car. She was not yet a believer either. And we had Miss D's daughters in the car with us. And these women, um, these young women were, were godly young women. They had been taught the scriptures. They were seeking to live, live up to it. And so it was the dirty, it was the unclean version. And it was playing and going, going. And the young lady in the back, I never forget, she was like, Miss um, Juana, I don't think that we should be listening to this music. And, um, and my mom was like, oh, we need to turn it off. Again, uh, it's not the Leon you see before you. This is another person. And I was like, what? No, turn that back up. And we cranked it up and we're playing the music. And I saw the embarrassment of my mom's. And I got to be honest, I did not feel sorry for this. 
for years until I became a Christian. I loved everything that Busta Rhymes was saying in those songs. I, I desired to one day partake of the things that Busta Rhymes was saying in those songs. If I'm honest, I was already partaking of what was available to me at the time. But it wasn't until I became a Christian, until I encountered God and he did this marvelous work in my heart that I then grieved having desired those things. I grieved having partook of those things. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, it is nothing short of miraculous when God does this work in the heart of a sinner. And I think that Jesus was acknowledging how incredible it was that these religious leaders had witnessed this power of God radically changing these people's lives, people who they knew. They knew who the prostitutes were. They knew who the tax collectors were. And they witnessed how God had changed these prostitutes to faithful and sexually healthy people. They saw how God had changed these tax collectors from infamous, corrupt swindlers to honest government servants. They witnessed it. They saw it with their two eyes. And still, they chose to deny the power of God at work in both John and Jesus. Friends, let me say something. I'll say it again in another way. The most effective witness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to the power of God at work in the world today is found in the sincere repentance of Christians. Because this is a work that only God can do and that he will surely do when anyone turns in faith to him. Eugene Peterson, he puts it this way in his, interpret his uh, interpretation or translation of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He said, and this is a long uh, quote, so just stick with me. He says, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us, doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he, want us. he wants us with all time in this world and in the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift to us from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Julie, you can come up. A mentor of mine who um, is a prolific uh, communicator, um, he used to tell this story 
about a big mural in a, on a wall in Orlando. Some of you may have seen it. I think it may have been taken down now. But it's a big blue wall, and on this wall, there's tons of, of ugly fish going in one direction. And then right in the middle of the fish, there's this quite better-looking fish swimming, swimming the opposite direction. And he used this illustration to explain repentance. He would say, repentance simply means to turn around. Repentance, he would say, means that you were going in one direction and you turn and go in the opposite direction. And I think this is a good illustration for us to hold on to. I couldn't find ugly fish, so this is the best I could find online to use. But I think that this illustration is great for us to hold on to as we consider the main idea of this passage, that true repentance requires both a grieved heart and a changed life. You see, it's not enough that the fish knows that he needs to turn around. It isn't enough that he's sorry that he's going in the same sinful direction as every other fish. At some point, he has to actually turn. And if you could speak to this fish, I bet you he would tell you a few things about turning around. I think the first thing he would say is this, swimming the opposite direction is a lot harder than swimming with the, with the rest of the fish. He would say, you see, because when you swim with the fish, you swim with the current of the river. And simply all you got to do is float along. He says, but swimming this way makes me a lot more tired because I'm having to swim against the flow. I'm having to swim against the flow of this world, the way it's going. You know what? I bet you he would also say, man, I got some bruises. I got some bumps because as I'm swimming this way, I'm knocking up against all of these other fish that are choosing to go this direction. I think this fish would tell you this is not easy. This hurts and it's exhausting. And so you'd ask, so why do it? Why turn the opposite direction, fish? Why repent when it's so easy to just go the way that everybody else is going? And I imagine he would respond, well, because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. You see, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we don't repent in order to receive love from God. Christians repent because we've received love from God. Christians repent because we've received forgiveness from God. And our repentance is simply the appropriate response. In Luke chapter 17, verse 47 and following, there's one of the most beautiful stories in all the scripture. Jesus is invited by one of the religious leaders to his home to eat a meal. And whenever the religious leaders extended this kind of invitation to Jesus, it was usually to trip him up somehow. And as Jesus is at this religious leader's table in his home eating a meal, a woman comes in among us. Again, the woman's mere presence is scandalous. But the woman comes in, and not only is she present at this table of men, she kneels at Jesus' feet. And she begins to wash his feet with the hair of her head and the tears that fall from her eyes. 
And this religious leader, aware of who this woman is, he looks at everybody else at the table and he says, Ah, now we got him. Because if Jesus knew that this woman was as sinful as she was, there's no way he would allow this. And if he does know, then boy, is he really worse than we thought. Jesus being God, knowing, knowing the thoughts of man, he lets the man know that he is indeed aware of the depths of her sin. As a matter of fact, this woman is washing Jesus' feet in the manner that she is because, because he is aware of how sinful she is. But she is aware of how merciful he is. She's washing his feet because she knows that Jesus knows how sinful she is, and yet he has forgiven and loved her. Jesus tells the religious leader that her actions are in fact appropriate because her actions are born of love. And her love is born of having been loved and forgiven. Friends, true repentance comes from a place of love for God because of how much he's loved us first. We do not repent to grace. We repent from grace. Now here is grace. You and I, because we have missed the mark that we talked about earlier, we rightfully deserve the displeasure, the wrath of God on our lives. However, in his mercy, God has placed his displeasure, his wrath on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And what we receive in return is God's forgiveness and acceptance into his family. This gift is 100% ours if we would only believe that Jesus indeed did this for us. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm coming to learn that it just isn't easy for people to acknowledge this, to acknowledge that we are sinners and that we need forgiveness from God. For some of the reasons I mentioned and for some of the reasons that are, are still foreign to me. But it's difficult. And I can't say that this morning I necessarily have the answer, even as I alluded to earlier, to help us weaving through all of that. But I can say this, that unless we become like this woman from, Rome, from, from uh, Luke chapter 17... Or unless we become like the tax collectors or the prostitutes in our passage this morning, knowing that we are sinful, knowing that we have missed the mark, knowing that we are heading in the wrong direction and that we need to turn around, we will not be able to experience the depths of the love and forgiveness that God pours out to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask this morning, will you turn? Will you acknowledge that you are in need of the forgiveness and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and turn? Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters giving their time and attention to this word. And I do pray that you would accomplish in our hearts what you desire. May we believe. May we repent. May we be saved. Forgiven. 